Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. We're actually going to start a few verses up in 16. That will be the general area. This is the story of Elisha coming on the scene in 1 Kings 17. Like I said, we'll look at a few verses in 16 towards the end to kind of get a little a feel for the type of scene that he came in on. And there are several lessons here that we can learn from these chapters. Um, but really, in the end of 16 and all of 17, there's really one big main lesson, and that is this. One main lesson, God always keeps his word. Let me read to you First Kings 16, starting up in 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which is built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Ashereth. Thus, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This is the picture, this is the scene in which Elijah um, shows up in. It is not a um, sanitary, nice, unhostile environment. It is in the context of King Ahab and Jezebel, who is still a proverb to this day for her wickedness. Um, These are not ideal circumstances at all. Evil has a death grip on Israel, and honestly, at this point, it looks like nothing is going to be able to check the spread of wickedness. It feels like the type of situation where you're in where it is just so hard to do the right thing because everyone around you and everything around you is evil. You may feel like this, um, you know, those of you who go to school, you may feel like this at school. Many of you have talked to at work, you may feel like this at work. It's like evil is just pressing in around you, and sometimes it looks like goodness and God and his power are nowhere to be found, and in some ways out of reach. To understand what happens next, you need to know a little bit of history because the geography is very significant here of what we're about to read in 34 about what happens in Jericho. Well, back in Joshua chapter 6, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. You remember the story, right? After the walls fell, by God's power and authority, Joshua, does anybody remember what happened? Joshua, something happened. I mean, the walls came tumbling down, and then Joshua said some things. Does anybody remember what was said about Jericho? It was cursed. Jericho was cursed. It says this in Joshua six twenty six. Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundations. 
and with the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So God, through Joshua, way back there, centuries earlier, had said, the man that rebuilds Jericho, this place is cursed, and by his firstborn, he will lay its foundations, and his youngest sons, he shall set up its gates. Well, several hundred years have passed, and they knew better now, right? Uh, Those were a lot of interesting stories back there about floods and towers being built and walls falling, but you can't believe these Bible stories actually happened, can you? I mean, they're interesting stories, but you can't believe they actually happened. And now, uh, they looked around, Jericho looked like a really nice place, and what a shame to waste a good piece of property just because of some Bible stories that were told. This is Ahab's reign, and they're educated now. They know some things. I mean, that was centuries earlier, and that was interesting for what they believed, you know, probably some mythological stuff, and that's how that culture handled it. But these are educated people now under Ahab's reign, and they know much better. And how embarrassing that someone would believe that this nice piece of land couldn't be used because of a Bible story. That's the thought. So they broke ground and rebuilt the city. Knowing these things, high-handedly, just dismiss them. They're educated. They're smart. They know better. How silly that you wouldn't use this land because of some story long ago that's a really good story that probably has some morals to it, but it isn't really true. Well, verse 34. In his days, Hiel the Bethlehite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abraham his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of, the son of Nun. Turns out that floods and Egyptians drowning and walls coming down actually did happen. And it turns out that God's word was true. Centuries later, cultures had changed. They were real educated now and smart. But guess what was still true? God's word. And now there are two little graves in Jericho to remind everyone of this. God is not to be trifled with. And he always keeps his word, even when it looks like he's a million miles away. I've told this story before. Um, Actually, when I taught through this passage um, several years ago, but I want to tell it again about my grandfather and the rabbit. Um, Several of you have heard this, but perhaps some of you haven't. Way down in South Alabama, where we would hunt, lived my grandfather. He was the epitome of the southern man, tough tough as nails, heart of iron in a lot of ways, and yet little defenseless things somehow had found a hole in his heart, and little defenseless things he felt like it was his job to defend. So he's out, which is a little ironic because he's sitting in a deer stand, but anyway, he's sitting in this deer stand, and this little rabbit comes out and starts um, eating out in this little green patch, and he loved little rabbits. And he's watching this little rabbit, and this rabbit, if you've ever seen this happen, they'll start at the edge of the woods, and as soon as they start to feel better, they move out. And right about when that rabbit got out in the middle of that green patch, um, he looked over, and slinking up out of one of the corners was a bobcat. And the rabbit hadn't seen it 
I mean, if you've ever seen these things move, it's amazing. This bobcat slinks up out of the corner and slowly starts moving towards that rabbit. And when he was telling me the story, he said you could tell the moment that that rabbit realized there was a bobcat. He just froze like this. And so the bobcat kind of stood up. It's like, all right, you want to race? Let's race. Well, that rabbit looked around, and after a little while, the rabbit made his dash to the other side. Bobcat's over here. The rabbit's over here. The rabbit tried to make it over to the right side. Bobcat is fast enough to run around and cut him off. Bobcat, uh, the rabbit comes over to this side. Bobcat circles back around and cuts him off this way. And each time, this is getting to be a smaller and smaller circle before finally that bobcat is only a few feet away from this little rabbit. And that rabbit just sits there frozen. I mean, it is absolutely over. And the last thing that that bobcat heard was the roar of my grandfather's 30 aux 6. <laughs> if you don't know what a 30 aux 6 is, it is a gun plenty enough to take down, big enough to take down a bobcat. I mean, a shot out of absolutely nowhere. It was all over. I mean, for this bobcat, it's like, this is done. Like, we're about to do supper. And that was the last thing he heard because my grandfather was watching this whole thing happen through a scope. And out of a clear blue sky comes a thunder, and then it's over. And that's a lot of what happens here. I mean, the sky was blue. Um, everything looked fine. They're doing what they want. Wickedness is unchecked. And a guy walks up and is like, I'm going to build Jericho. This is ridiculous. Like, about these stories that happen, there's a curse on this land. I'm going to lay this foundation. I'm going to set up these gates. And lo and behold, God was watching God was watching and executed his judgment hundreds of years later after making that promise. God always keeps his word even when it looks like he's a million miles away. And that is the theme that continues into chapter 17 and the context in which Elijah comes on the scene. This verse, this uh, theme keeps getting driven home. Look at this. I'm just going to go through some of these verses in chapter 17. Verse 1, there shall be no dew or rain except by my word. 2, the word of the Lord came. 4, I have commanded the ravens. 5, according to the word of the Lord. 8, I have commanded a widow. um, Let's see. Oh, no. Eight, the word of the Lord came. Nine, I have commanded a widow. Fourteen, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Fifteen, so she went and did according to the word of the Lord. Sixteen, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord. And 24, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, in your mouth is truth. Over and over and over again, it's brought up of this theme, the word of the Lord. And the fact that even when God seems like he's a million miles away, he always, always keeps his word. And that's point number one. God always keeps his word. Let's read one, one through seven. Now Elijah... The Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be no dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook at Cherith, 
which is east of the Jordan. It shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. The question is, why does God hide Elijah away for a season? It doesn't seem like God couldn't figure out any other way to keep him from harm. I mean, one chapter later, fire's dropping from heaven. Um, That doesn't seem to be it at all. It appears as though that Elijah is being hidden away because he needs to learn something first. And what he needs to learn is the simple life of daily trust in the Lord and relying on his word. God enrolled Elijah in his seminary with two classes each day, and a couple of ravens were his professor. Every morning, he would walk to class by the brook. Soon here came the ravens with God's daily lesson. God keeps his word. And then through the rest of the day, uh, Elijah would review this thought. God keeps his word. God said ravens were going to feed me. Ravens fed me. And he would meditate on that all day long. Then came evening class. The ravens were back for review. God keeps his word. God said that ravens were going to come and feed me. Ravens just came and feed me. God always keeps his word. Notice that this is not one of those short summer classes. According to verse 7, it says it happened after a while. After a while. I mean, if it were us, right? I mean, I know I would do this. It's like, Lord, let's do this for two days. And honestly, I'd be thinking, let's do this for one day. But you don't want to look like you're impatient. So you'd say, let's do this for two days. Lord, let's do this for two days. And then I've got this lesson. But no, it's not like that with us, is it? Oftentimes, God will take you over the same thing over and over and over again. I'll tell you a verse that just sticks in my head all the time. Back there, I believe it's in either Exodus or Deuteronomy. It talks about the children of Israel, and it says they became impatient because of the journey. Have you read that before, that phrase? They became impatient because of the journey. And that can happen with us. It's like, Lord... I've got it. Can we please move on to something else? And God's like, nope, you're going back to that brook again, and those ravens are going to come again, and you're going to sit there with that thought all day long. God keeps his word, and then they're going to come back in the evening, and they're going to do it again. And then for the rest of the night, you're going to be sitting there thinking, God keeps his word, and we're going to do this long enough until you wake up one day, and you say, I think God keeps his word. Right? That's what happens with us. Beloved, don't become impatient because of the journey. God knows what's best for us. He really does. He knows what we need. The foundation is essential. This is essential. It's not just essential for Elijah. This is essential for us. It is essential. There are so many other things that are more glamorous to learn about, but if you don't nail this down, you are not going to get very far in the Christian life. God keeps his word. Foundations are essential, but they're not glamorous. You usually don't see TV shows like Extreme Makeover Foundation Edition or (laughs) This Old Foundation. 
Like, you just, you're not probably going to see those types of things. Like, when people walk in, they're not like, hey, I heard you guys did something to the foundation. Let's go check it out. Like, that's not, that's not it. Foundations are not glamorous at all. But you know what happens if you have a bad foundation? I do. <laughs> and a lot of you helped me with it. You have to take all that pretty stuff out that was so fun to look about. It's like, hey, come look what we just did to that sheetrock. Well, I can show you what bad foundation does to sheetrock. And it's bad news. If your foundation's bad enough, you're going to have to rip all that pretty stuff out, then rip the foundation out, then do it right, and then maybe if that foundation is solid, you can start putting up the pretty stuff again. The point is this. Foundations may not be glamorous, and we get impatient with God laying some of this foundation work in our life, but they are absolutely essential, and you need to trust God that he knows what's best. Do not become impatient because the journey... We have to learn this lesson. You have to sit with Elijah by that brook. God always keeps his word. Always. Let me illustrate this from the deathbed of a saint. Del Ralph Davis um, tells this story. He's actually talking about the Phoenician woman that we'll get to in a little bit who just believed God's word about some oil. But he says this. And again, this, is just, this is, relates to just believing simple truth. He says, most of us believers can never get more sophisticated than this Phoenician woman. Or you can pick anybody, really. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the people like the, the blind men, the, um, the lepers, you know, they didn't know a ton of theology and stuff, but they took God at his word. Some of us may know more apologetics or philosophy or theology than she ever did, but at the end of the day, we find that faith consists in leading all of our weight upon the mere word of God. For all the additional light we may have, we still step over the edge of life onto the brink of eternity with nothing to support us except some word like, quote, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out, John six thirty seven. So you can, man, you can know all the big words and hang with all the big deep books and stuff like that. But when you step out in eternity or when you hit a hard spot or a storm, all you're going to be able to have in your hand is some word like, the one who comes to me I will not cast out. We could do no better than old Robert Bruce at his last breakfast when he divined his master was calling him and asked his younger daughter to, quote, cast me up to the eighth of Romans. His eyes failed, but his memory held as he repeated the latter part of the chapter. When he had recited verses 38 and 39, he ordered his daughter to, quote, set my finger on these words. Quote, I die, he said, believing in these words. That's it. That is the simple life of daily trust in the Lord. It can get more complicated. The words can get bigger. The logic can get longer, but at the end of the day, you have to set your, wor- your finger on some verse and say, I'm going to believe that. I'm going to stake my whole life on that. I'm staking my whole life on the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth of the life. Or God said um, he will provide for, all of, for me in all of my circumstances. Or this I know that God is for me. Or so on and so forth. What verse is it this morning? What truth is it that you need to put your finger on this morning and say, this is what is true and I don't care how I feel. God is true. 
Number two, God always keeps his word, even when it looks like things are impossible. Listen to this. 17, starting in verse 8, we'll read two verses here. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. The first problem here is the zip code. Zarephath is about eight miles south of Sidon and 13 miles north of Tyre, which is right in the middle of the domain of Jezebel's father, King Ethbal of the Sidonians. And you remember that up from 1631. It says that... Um, Ahab um, added to his sins in that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. God is sending Elijah right to the epicenter of paganism. This is not a good place to thrive and flourish. If you're thinking a lot of times when you plant delicate flowers, I know we've talked about building a garden. Well, if you're going to build a garden around here, you better have a chain-link fence and a sniper because deer and rabbits and everything else is going to come wipe that garden out. You have to, have, you have to protect this little thing growing up. Well, this right here would be like taking down those fences and putting up a sign that says deer allowed in a garden here. Like, this does not look like a good plan. God is sending Elijah right into the epicenter of paganism. It looks like this is going to be impossible. This is not an easy circumstance to flourish in the things of God. But notice, as it often is the case with the Lord, just when you think things are like, okay, now we're at weakness, right? It's like now you get to some trial and you're like, okay, this is weakness. And God's like, oh, you don't know what weakness is quite yet. Well, we're going to start moving there. Verses uh, 17, starting, um, I'll read 9 again, 9b. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and says, please get me a little drink, uh, get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please give me a little piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in a jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah walks right into the heart of paganism because God said there's a widow there that I've commanded to take care of you. I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to feed you through this widow. And when he shows up, it turns out that his miracle was herself in need of a miracle. She didn't have any food either. So here they are in the middle of paganism. He's coming in and expecting a widow that's been stocking food or something like that. Walks up. She's gathering sticks. That was probably his first tip-off. This is not looking really good. Then he asks her for bread, and her face sinks, and she's like, I don't have any bread. Things are getting worse. This looks like this is impossible. Verses, uh, chapter 17, verses 13 and 14. Let's continue reading. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear. And that's significant, because that sounds like God, doesn't it? Doesn't God often preface things in the Bible with do not fear? Like when something's coming up, 
And either something's happened that's a trial or God's telling them, like, this is going to happen and this is going to be a trial, like in the case of Joshua. How often does God say, do not fear? How, how precious is that? That should tell you something about God's character. Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me and afterward... You may make one for yourself and your son, for thus says the Lord, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. You could understand if she was a little bit frustrated with this, right? She tells Elijah, I don't have any food left, basically. I've got this one cake. We were going to eat it and then die. I mean, that's literally what she says. And Elijah says, I'll have some of that. And by the way, please make mine first. I mean, this does not seem like a good plan. This is not a good, like if you've ever been to evangelism strategy classes, this would not be the way to do it. It seems cold and it seems heartless. After all, he had been the one that had seen the ravens provide. Shouldn't he go first? But none of this happened. None of this happened. She didn't say any of this, and it appears as though she didn't give if she thought any of this, she didn't give it a second thought. Verse 15. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. Many days. What happened? She took God on the bare word that God would provide for her. And lo and behold, God always keeps his word, even when it looks impossible. Someone said this in one of the books that I read. um, Said this, said, um, God said, give me everything you have, and I will give you everything that you need. So you turn this over to the Lord. You give it to Elijah first. Give, give him everything that you have, and then I will provide for everything that you need. Even when circumstances look absolutely impossible, God always keeps his word. Right here in the middle and the epicenter of paganism, shouldn't that encourage us? I don't know what your home's like. There may be a lot going on in your home. I don't know what your work's like or what you're facing in school or what you may be facing with your friend group or your family, or it could be a bunch of things. But a lot of times you can feel like, I am so surrounded by evil that it's impossible for me to do the right thing. It's impossible for me to believe God and thrive. Well, there's a little widow in Zarephath that would beg to differ. This little widow out in the middle of Zarephath. And what a picture of this Gentile surrounded by a bunch of God's people that have gone off into paganism and are worshiping Baal and the Asherah and everything else. What a wonderful picture of this little Zarephath widow who is believing God and taking him at his bare word. And you know what she found? God always keeps his word. And that oil just kept coming and coming and coming. And she and her household ate for many days why God always keeps his word and it doesn't matter the circumstances it doesn't matter the circumstances I've told you this story too um, of being over in Romania and going to that gypsy village 
and um, really struggling. I shared a couple of weeks ago about some of the battles with depression that I faced. And over in Romania, there were a couple of times when I really, I would just get under it. And it was very hard to fight out from, from under it. Um, just really struggling with being down and trying to hold on to truth. And it feels like it's just slipping out of your hands. And, and then I'm over in Romania. And at that point, I had not learned the language well yet. And so there was like, I felt isolated, didn't have a ton of people um, that I could talk to in that particular context that I was in because I was actually living away from one of the bigger cities at that point. And it's like, Lord, how am I going to, like, there, you know, how, what, how am I going to thrive? How am I going to keep my head above water in this? And I remember us going to one of the gypsy villages, and um, I have described the scene before. I walked up, and you can't imagine how bombed out and trashy and junky these villages are. Like you, unless you've seen it, you can't imagine. It's not like a trash dump, because most of the trash in the trash dump a lot of times looks new. This is like an old trash dump, and, and with huts all around that are run down with, like, whatever they could find to patch holes all over everything and it's this and the like there's no grass growing there in this particular area and it it is just as bleak as it possibly could be and in the middle of this area there's a pole that was sticking up out of the ground and you may have seen this in other places before it had to have been there for since Moses I mean it was like old 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 and it was rusty and you know what happens to these things as rain happens and whatever, stuff starts dropping in the top. And so slowly this pole had filled up, and apparently there was enough soil in there that a seed had fallen in the top. And out of the top of that old, rusty, nasty pole in the middle of an absolute bombed-out war zone, there was one of the most beautiful flowers I've ever seen in my life growing out of the top of that little, that little pole. And right there, God told me, I can make anything flourish Anywhere I want to, anytime I want to. What a comfort that we serve a God like that. A God who can make a flower grow in a trash dump. And you know what? It doesn't matter where you're at. Some of you are facing some really, really hard circumstances. Really hard circumstances. Things that you're going through. Situations that you're in. And it feels like God. Other people could flourish, but I could never flourish because these things are happening You need to listen to that little widow in Zarephath. God can make the oil come day after day after day right in the center of paganism. Praise God for the God that makes flowers grow in trash dumps. Finally, in conclusion, believe God even when his ways look perplexing. Verse 17 Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. So the son became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. He died. So she said to Elijah, what what do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? 
Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him and revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. We know the end of the story um, because we just read it. But let's be honest, if you were experiencing this as it happened and just looking on, you would not think this was a good plan at all for God to let this child die. I mean, you've got one widow, this little Gentile woman. She's believed the word of the Lord. The oil has been flowing. And now her son, that token from God of his goodness, because God had kept him alive through this famine. You remember earlier, she was actually pretty resolved about him dying. You remember when they were about to starve to death? She said, we're going to go, I'm going to go gather some sticks. We're going to make a cake and we're going to die. And it wasn't a big deal, but now it's a big deal. It's frantic. It's frantic. And the reason why it's frantic is because it's more like it's devastating for her child to die. But to have hope and then to lose hope, that's hard. That's devastating. Because tied up with the life of this child is the faithfulness of God. Whether or not she had a promise that this child was going to live, she believed she did which is quite a thought. She believed she did. Back in um, 14, it says, For thus says the Lord, The bowl of the flour shall not be exhausted, nor the jar of oil be empty until the day the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. She took that to mean that God is going to take care of me and my household until it starts raining again. And now she has a child that's dead. She feels like I put my faith in God, and now something else happened. My sins were brought up. Isn't it interesting that that's the thing that she says? It's very interesting. Her child dies, and the first thing she says is, I must have sinned. I wonder if there's people out here that have struggled with that, with this low-grade guilt that somehow your sins are still haunting you. When something happens, the first thought and pops into your mind is, is, yeah, God must be mad at me, and I probably deserve it. I wonder if there's someone out here that struggles with those types of things, that that God loves you, but it's kind of a cool distance because you've really got some stuff that you need to clean up into your life. Or I wonder if you can hear this morning that word that says, God loved the world, that he gave his only son. Is that what he says? It's not what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God so loves you, and because of the work that Jesus did, it says there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid for every one of your sins in full, and God loves you. He disciplines his children, but their condemnation is not back. But this throws her for a loop. And you wonder what God's thinking. It appears as though God leashes a hurricane on the last flickering candle there, in, uh, there near I- Israel. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like you can't take anything else and then one more thing comes your way? You know, there's that ridiculous theology <laughs> that says God will not give you more than you can bear. 
And that's really encouraging until it happens, <laughs> right? And there's Bible verses about this. There's actually Bible verses like 2 Corinthians 1.8. We do not, this is Paul, all right? This is not, this is Paul. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction that came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. God will not lay on you more than you can bear. They did not read the Bible when they wrote that. They did not read the Bible. But you know what God is? God is a good father. And you've sometimes, if you're a good parent, you've done this with your children too. Sometimes, if they can't get something or they need a lesson, you can ask them to do things that are impossible because you're trying to get them to ask you for help. Because the thing that's going to hurt them the most is if they don't learn to ask for help right? It's going to hurt them badly if they've got a self-confidence that goes rogue and thinks that they can take care of everything themselves. God will, God will give you more than you can bear sometimes, but he will never leave you alone, ever. And that's the big point here. Never. God loves to show mercy, and in this case, he does. What happens? She gives the child to Elijah, and I love the fact that he's kind of thrown for a loop, too. He's like, Lord, what are you doing? It just goes to show there's nobody strong in this situation. God's going to end up having to be the hero yet again, just like he always has been throughout redemptive history. And God raises this little child to life. What can we get from this, and how could the word of God come into play the way that the Word of God will come into play and why I would encourage you, whether you follow a Bible, follow a Bible plan, I know some people, I don't know one brother that reads about 17 chapters a day. I praise God for that. I tried that one time for a half of a day. It was horrible. Um, I, I couldn't remember anything. Like, I got nothing except for the ability to say, hey, I read X number of chapters. Then it's pride, and then you have to go undo it all. It was, like, worthless. Praise God if you're one of the people that can just read volumes and that's what God does with you. There's going to be others of you that it's not going to be that way at all. You're going to read a few verses, a paragraph, a page. It could be, you know, I don't know. I'm not even going to throw out any more things because God deals with his people differently. Here's the thing, though. Consistently be in the word. Daily be in the word. You need to be in the word. You're not going to live unless you're not in the word. You're not going to thrive. If you come to us with um, issues of pastoral counseling, we love to help. If you go to other brothers and sisters, which you should, there's been people that have come to me before that ask about something, and I tell them, I don't want this to sound like a cop-out, but this brother or this sister over here is going to be able to help you way better than I am. This is not a one- or two-man show, and you're like, oh, praise the Lord. It's not. There are people like John Mark's message this morning on parenting. I was just sitting there thinking, man, God has given him a gift. And, oh, I would love to hear, I wish he would teach a long series on parenting that I couldn't teach. But I feel like he can. He's got that gift. And my train of thought is completely gone. Be in the word. Be in the word. And um, if you seek counsel from us, or if you seek counsel from people in the church, probably one of the first questions that they're going to ask you is, tell me about your time in the Word. I mean, you'd be like going to a doctor 
and you've got all these ailments that are happening, and like you're just falling to pieces, and they say, tell me about your eating and sleeping, and you tell them, well, I eat one meal a day at a fast food restaurant and sleep for about three hours a night. They're going to say, why don't you start eating three square good wholesome meals a day, and you start sleeping some, and then come back in two weeks and let's see how you're doing, right? It's basic, and that seems almost laughable. The same thing is true of being in the Word for the Christian life, daily being in the Word. Even if it's not volume, something, some truth in your mind, because what will happen is you start to build a repertoire of promises when you start out the Christian life, and then as you go on, you start building a repertoire of the character of God, which turns out helps you as much, if not more, than the promises, because sometimes you'll get situations, oftentimes actually, where you don't have a specific promise, but you know something about the character of God. And you can bring the character of God and the way that God's acted in the past right to bear, like right up against this situation and start pleading for God in prayer over that. I do that when I'm praying for my kids all the time. I start walking through text of Jesus helping desperate parents in the Bible. There's no text in there that says, um, you know, if you ask for your child's salvation, I will grant it to you immediately without question. There are actually some that get reasonably close, believe it or not. I could be heretical on that, so I won't teach it. Um, I think there's some that gets uh, pretty close. But you can take these stories and bring this like, look, Lord, look what you did for this parent. And look what you did for this parent and this parent and this parent. It looks to me like you delight to help parents. Would you please come and help me? Like it looks to me like it's your parent, your, uh, your disposition, especially to help desperate mothers. Look at Hannah. Look, at, look throughout the Bible at all of these desperate mothers. It looks like to me, God, you help desperate mothers. Would you please bless my wife today? You can get the character of God and start bringing that to bear on your prayers, and it will change your life. Because now you don't need a bunch of, like, I have to remember all of these super specific promises. If you can just remember that God loves to show mercy, he loves to show mercy, He'll judge to the third and fourth generation, but when he goes to show mercy, he shows it to thousands. There was one time that he told a wayward prophet that he should quit having such a bad attitude because these people didn't even know their right hand from their left hand. I mean, would you have had compassion just because of that? I mean, like, well, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. Let's leave this off for a while. Probably not, but God is that way. He's the kind of God that walks up and sees a mom crying because her son died, and it's, he's moved with compassion. It's not something where the thought comes first. It's something where an emotion, yeah, an emotion inside of him moves him toward a situation of pity and misery out of a desire to alleviate suffering for him, from his rebellious subjects. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If you can get a hold of that, if you can get a hold of that, you can bring that to bear on a lot of situations and walk with God through the fog. I've read this quote before, but I really like it. He is too wise to be mistaken and too good to be unkind. When you cannot trace his hand, like your token of his faithfulness dies... When you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. Let's pray. Lord, you, you said there in the Gospels, 
you said, um, call no man rabbi, call no man father, and then you said, because you are all brothers. And I feel that this morning, Lord. I feel a, such a solidarity with the fellowship here, Lord, that, I, Lord, you've given us, a, Andrew and I, this title of elder, and we preach, but God, at the end of the day, we're brothers, and that's all we are, Lord, with these dear saints And I pray that you would help us all as a collective unit, Lord, all of us together. You would break down every division, Lord. You'd break down every wall, anything that would come between the saints that would, um, Lord, be against that unity and cause any sort of disunity. Because, God, we hear messages like this and we just realize, Lord, we need each other. God, we need each other so badly to be in one another's lives saying, hey, God will keep his word in your situation. And we say back, and God will keep his word in your situation. So God, how I thank you for the saints. Thank you, Lord, for them from the bottom of our hearts, for the privilege it is to serve them. I pray that you'd bless them today. And I pray that areas of their life where they need to put their finger on some verse and say, I believe that. I pray that you would lead them in that by your spirit. Give them power to fulfill every desire for good. In Jesus' name, amen.